Thanks, David. Good morning, church. We're continuing a series in the book of Philippians, and it's called Life Built on the Gospel. And today we've got a topic called, uh, it's about humility, Christian humility. And humility is the basic disposition of a Christian heart before a holy God. So the the text that we're going to look at today is wonderful. It's uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And this text is staggering in its scope of what it actually discusses. But it is also very practical to where we live. So um, if you ever visited a national park, um, you know that there's, it's like everywhere you go in a national park, it's all beautiful, but then there's certain places where you want to pull the car off, you want to park, and you want to walk out to this view and just kind of sit there and and soak it in. This text is like one of those views. It's like where you would pull your car off the side of the road and just soak it in. That's what this text is like. It is so beautiful in its description of Christ. So, um, what we're going to do is, is uh, take a look at this text and talk about the humility and exaltation of Christ. So let me, let's dig in here, and I'm going to read the whole text uh, at once, and then we'll go back through a verse at a time and, and look at it more closely. So Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit... Any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Humility is the virtue that receives all of life as a gift. After all, what do we have that we did not receive? What does any of us have that God didn't give to us? Humility recognizes that we are utterly dependent on God for everything, and apart from Him, we can do nothing. So humility is a disposition of the soul that says, I'm not worthy. I'm not deserving. God alone is worthy. So humility is also where the Christian life begins, because it's knowing and believing that we are great sinners and that Christ is a great Savior. And just as we become Christians by humbling ourselves before a holy God, humility is the prerequisite for all Christian virtue. Every sin begins with pride, 
There's no such thing as a proud virtue. And every true virtue begins with humility because all virtue is humble. Proverbs 8.13, it says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. God hates pride. Augustine once said that the top three precepts of the Christian faith are these. Humility, humility, and humility. Jonathan Edwards said, humility or humiliation is one of the most essential things pertaining to true Christianity. So that's what we're going to look at. What does true humility look like? And we're going to see in the text that it looks like Jesus. But I want to break that down into three points. We're going to look at the call of humility, the example of humility, and the result of it. So we'll start off here with the call of humility. Let me read to you the first five verses again, and we're going to notice that Paul starts with the practical, right? Paul starts with the practical thing. Verses one through five, he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now let's pause here. There's, there's just too much gold in this sermon, or in this uh, text, to cover in one sermon. So I just have to encourage you to study it for yourself. There's lots of things that are interesting that we're not going to be able to get, get into. But I want to I zoom in on uh, these more practical verses. So verse 2, Paul tells us that the driving interest in this, in this text is to show how humility works its way out in community, right? So humility is, is something that you do with other people, at least in part. That's a part of humility. It's, it's the disposition that we have uh, towards others. And so his point is practical. He's, he's teaching us about humility so we can love better. And it's not merely to make us more introspective, which is, I think, the most common way that we think of humility. We think of it's like a, an introspective thing. But the way Paul is describing humility is this, it's humility is, is, is characterized by the way that we interact with each other. And so Paul's got these two attitudes that he contrasts here, two ways of being. There's a proud way and there's a humble way. So let me, let me uh, flesh this out a little bit more. The proud person um, in the NIV the translation, it says the proud person is marked by selfish ambition and vain conceit. So there's this, that's the proud person, selfish ambition and vain conceit, meaning this person is self-focused. This person is preoccupied with themselves. So the, the, the word selfish ambition, Paul used the same word in Philippians chapter 1 to describe people that were in ministry, but they were doing it for the wrong reason. Remember that? He was talking about people who were preaching the true gospel, but they had a motive problem, and the motivation was there was a selfish interest in their ministry. He calls that selfish ambition the same word that he used here. In James chapter 3, the word selfish ambition is paired with the word jealousy twice. Selfish ambition and jealousy goes together. And he says in James 3 that that, that leads to, um, he says, disorder and every vile practice. So a lot of times we might think that selfish ambition is, this, uh, is a particular way. So if, if you think of people that um, are like, let's say, 
greedy people. So if you think about, you know, the, cut, the cutthroat environment of the corporate world, and the, to lament that often misdiagnoses the problem because they think, well, that's about greed, right? They think, like, people, this corporate environment is tough because of people's greed, but oftentimes it's selfish ambition is really the issue. It's not so much about the dollars. It's not so much about the money. A lot of times it's selfish ambition. It's, it's about being known within their peers in their industry as being at the top of their game, of getting the accolades and the respect from others. Selfish ambition can take that form and not be a profit motive. But that's pride. Now, Paul contrasts that with a humble person. The humble person aligns his or her heart with God's agenda. He's not being selfish. He loves what God loves and values what God values. And in Christian community, Paul gives us a very vivid description of what that looks like practically. He says, count others more significant than yourselves. I mean, what a mind-blowing thing that is to say. Who among us does that naturally? We're always, the, the most natural way for us to be is to be thinking about ourselves first, to be putting ourselves, our interests, our desires first. But Paul says, count others more significant. So a humble Christian is genuinely concerned for other people and for their well-being and for their interests. So humble people can be self-forgetful. They can love more easily because they're not seeking credit or recognition. Humble people treat others like they are important. Humble people look to lift others up, to build them up, to encourage them. Humble people listen with genuine interest and care because people matter to them. Now, there's some counterfeits of humility. And I want to talk about a couple of these counterfeits. Jeremiah 17 tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things, right? So there's a, there are things that we might think are humility but aren't actual true humility, according to Scripture. So I've, there's a lot of ways that it can be counterfeited. I just want to highlight two of them here. The first one is that Pride and or humility are not personality types. Pride and humility are not personality types. This is probably, from my observation, one of the biggest misconceptions about the concept. So the idea is that people who are mild-mannered and quiet and self-deprecating, those people are thought to be humble. But actually, a lot of times, they can be quite proud. I mean, humility can be very... Or, or somebody can be very proud, but be very quiet in their demeanor. So a, a quiet, shy introvert can be smug and self-righteous just like anybody else. They can be full of themselves, but do so with a sweet demeanor. So if, if we reduce humility to having an external, mild demeanor, then the heart is not really affected. A person can just manage the optics of humility, but end up being proud of that humility or at least proud of the perception of humility. And a lot of times the pride in their heart is revealed when things don't go their way. So they would smile on the outside but be boiling on the inside. You know, on the flip side, people who are confident and direct, bold or outspoken, those people are often associated with being proud, right? But that's not necessarily the case. That can be the case, but a lot of times um, that can be a, a, a person who's humble. You think of the Apostle Paul. The words I just used all describe the Apostle Paul. He was confident, direct, bold, outspoken, assertive. And yet Paul was, would, would not be called, considered a proud man 
It was, it was the, the outworking of the humility in his heart that was so focused on God's agenda, on the agenda of Christ and advancing the gospel that he was very bold and outspoken in that, in that, uh, in that endeavor. So pride comes in all shapes and sizes. Pride is not limited to a personality type. Proud, uh, pride people can be loud and arrogant, but pride can also be quiet and sweet. But the common denominator with all forms of pride is a self-focus. It's, it's a self-agenda. It's a focus on man and what he wants rather than God and what he wants. So whenever uh, Jesus rebuked Peter, remember there was this, this story in Matthew 16 where Jesus was talking about going to the cross, and Peter didn't like that because Peter had his own agenda for Jesus' life. So Peter said, hey, Jesus, man, don't ever do that. Like, don't, this whole cross stuff, we can't have that. And then Jesus gave Peter one of the strongest rebukes in all of Scripture. Jesus told Peter, uh, Matthew 16, 23, it said, he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's a proud heart. Because Peter wanted something different. He had his own agenda. He had his mind set on the things of man. There's another counterfeit of humility, and that's self-loathing. Humility is not this morbid, introspective self-hatred. So for me, there, there are a handful of things that I've gotten really good at. I, have, I know I have a lot of musical talent. Um, I'm, there's, there's a few things that I could just say I'm good at those things. So it's not proud to acknowledge that. To say I'm good at this, is not, it's not a proud thing, and nor is it humble to deny things like that. It's just being honest. Romans 12.3 says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So some people think it's humble to deny your talent or to deny something you're good at or to always be putting yourself down. So it's like, you know, we, there are people that speak like this, you know, I'm, I'm human garbage, I'm the scum of the earth, I'm, I'm just a pebble in the shoe of humanity. You know, this, this, this mindset that just seems like they just heap scorn on themselves as though that's an expression of godliness and humility, but that's wrong. That's a counterfeit humility. And ironically, that sort of talk is arrogant because it's self-focused. It's, it's putting the attention on oneself and speaking in such a way to draw attention to their outward displays of humility. It's a hypocritical thing to do. So it is arrogant to deny or negate what the scriptures say about us. God does not call us human garbage. God does not speak of us that way. God, I mean, God hates our sin, but God loves us. God loves people. So it is arrogant to say things like this because it twists the virtue of humility into something perverse. It denies who God says that we are. And so God is not pressed for the so-called humility of those who go around acting as though Jesus wasted his blood on them. Jesus didn't die for garbage. Jesus died for men and women who are created in his image, and our value to God is measured in the blood of Christ. So we don't get to score humility points by denying that, or by acting like we don't matter, or by acting like we can't do anything well. 
Jonathan Edwards says, that kind of false humility is a swelling, self-conceited, confident, showy, noisy, assuming humility. True humility is acknowledging the supremacy of God as the creator and ruler and sustainer of everything who nevertheless stoops down to take a saving interest in lowly, rebellious, sinful creatures like us. Not because we deserve it, not because we're worthy of it, but rather because he is a covenant-keeping God who loves his people and values them because he created them in his own image. And so we do not esteem others highly because we are so magnanimous and good or because we want to be recognized for being so, so, such wonderful people. We esteem others highly because we're told to in Scripture that God himself is the one who is good and magnanimous. And we want God to be recognized for that. Whenever we esteem others highly, as we're told to in Philippians 2, we're doing so as a demonstration of who God says that that person is. We're, we're valuing them according to what Scripture says is true of them. And so Paul drives this point home by showing us the most glorious example of humility, and that is Christ himself. So let's look at the example of humility. I want to read verse 5 again, and we'll keep going from there. Paul says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. So here's us. And he's telling us, here's a certain mind to have, right? Here's a certain, here's a certain way to think. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. So all the wonderful theology that we're about to dig into a little bit, all this theology that follows was given so that we might follow the example of Christ, so that we can have the mind among ourselves and in our interactions with one another that we've received from Christ when we became Christians. And the next three verses that follow show us this downward descent of humility of Jesus, lower and lower, lowering himself to be a servant into the very depths. So verses six through eight, let's read these. Who, though he was in the form of God, referring to Jesus, Jesus being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In verses 6 through 8, there are three uses of the English word form. Three times the word form is used. But behind those English words are different Greek words. So he says the form of God, the form of a servant, and in human form. But there's different Greek words, two different Greek words behind those English words. And the two different Greek words, there's the first two are morphe, and the last one is schema. And I, wanna, I want to explain this to you. So you have a, a visualization of this on the screen here. So you see um, morphe is, is in blue, and that's the first two uses. Jesus, though he was in the form, morphe of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form, there's the same word again, form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now, the word morphe, when we translate it into English, it's form, but what it means in the original is something as it is in its essence. 
So you could say the sun is in the form of a sphere. That doesn't mean it's a form of a sphere on Monday and the form of a square on Tuesday. No, the sun in its essence is spherical. That's what it is. It is, it is uh, uh, the morphe, Greek word morphe, it's, it's, it's in the form, it's always in the same form. Now the second word, schema, is the word that's used, it's also translated form in English, but it has a different meaning in the original, and that meaning is something in its present state. So schema, that version of the word form, would be like this Play-Doh is currently in the form of a sphere. So you have the sun in the form of a sphere, that's what it is in its essence. But then if you have Play-Doh in the form of a sphere, then you're like, well, that's, that's what it is right now until you change it. So that means it's something that has the ability to change. Why does this matter? This matters because of the way that um, some people historically have interpreted the, this text of Scripture. And they take it to mean that the word form means that to deny the deity of Christ. As though God formed Jesus. As though the word form means God created Jesus. And so what they do is say, well, there is, Jesus is not truly divine, but rather God made him, God formed him. So the, the first use of the word, if we go back through this, the first use of the word is, is something as it is in its essence. Jesus was and is and always will be divine. Jesus is God himself in his very essence. Jesus is in the form of God in that sense. And so from all eternity... Jesus enjoyed this perfect fellowship and union with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is fully divine in his essence. God did not create Jesus. So if the Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking on your door, that's one of the things they're going to want to talk to you about. They're going to tell you that God created Jesus and that Jesus wasn't truly divine. But that's not what scriptures teach. Jesus was not a man who became like God or Jesus was not a created being that God made. Rather, Jesus is God. So Jesus was, is, and ever will be God in his very essence who humbled himself to become a man for our sake. Now, the second use of the word form, Jesus took on the form of a human servant. So this is, this is something that he did without altering his essence. I mean, he's, still, he's still in the essence God, but he's also in his essence a servant. God is a God who serves. That's who God is. But the third use is where there's a change in the Greek word behind it. Same word in English, form, but the Greek word behind it indicates a different meaning of the word form. So Jesus was found in human form, meaning God in his essence, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who was eternally God in his essence, took on a change, took on a form, took on human form. So this means that Jesus is fully divine and fully human, and in his becoming humanity, he lost nothing of his divinity. Let me read to you what the Nicene Creed of 325 AD, a long time ago, um, whenever they worked through this, and they worked through this because they were combating a particular heresy, um, which is the Arian heresy, because there was a, historically that was one of the, the early things that was happening in the church was de denying the divinity of Christ. So the Nicene Creed of 325 says this, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, 
begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and on the earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. So Jesus is fully divine who took on human form for our sake. It was an act of humility. It was an act of assuming something, of, of limiting himself in some way for our sake. But let's keep going. The, the, verse 6, he said he, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now the word, word is verse 6 is count. And you may notice that's the same word that he used in verse 3 when he says in humility count Others are more significant than yourselves. Do you see that? In both cases, it's a, it's a way of reckoning something to be true even though it isn't. So it's a way of saying, if I'm going to count you more significant, that doesn't mean that you actually are more significant. It means I'm going to treat you as though you're more significant. Same thing here with Jesus. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning that he is not going to cling to his equality with God, even though he is equal with God. He's not going to cling to that, but he's going to count himself. He's going to do something to lower himself, even though he is equal with God. So whenever you and I were to treat another person, one another, another person is better than ourselves, we're not saying they truly are better, but we're saying we're going to count them as better, just as Jesus, who is equal with God and not lesser than God, He's going to count himself lower than God, lower than the Father. So Christ led the way in showing us how to lower ourselves in humility for the sake of building others up. The one who has false humility might count himself lower to appear humble, but do that to attract attention to himself. But that's not true humility. True humility can lower oneself to serve others without denying one's own value. That's what Jesus did. Jesus did not cling to his equality with God or his divine status. He laid them down in order to lift us up. Verse 7, he says he emptied himself. Well, what did he empty himself of? There's been a lot of debate in church history about what did he empty himself of? Did he empty himself of his divine status? Did he empty himself of his his holy character, or did he cease to be God, or did he, did he lose any of the essential properties of being divine? Well, of course not. He's God. He forever is will be God. It's like it would be impossible for him to be anything other than God. So when it says he emptied himself, it, it means these two things. One, it's like Jesus retained, he retained all of the essential qualities of divinity. He lost nothing that is essential to being divine. So his holy character, his divine power, his knowledge, who he is, all of those things. He lost none of those things. And he also assumed all of the essential qualities of being human. He was born. He had a physical body. He lived in space and time. He had to eat, drink. He had to breathe air. Everything that is true of, of being human being, uh, he, he assumed all of those essential qualities. So to say that Jesus emptied himself doesn't mean that he lost 
things that went away. Rather, it means he took on things that had the effect of reduction. (laughs) That's kind of confusing to say. It's like subtraction through addition. So Jesus lost things by taking things on. And what he took on was the human nature. So you can think of it this way. It's like if you have a, say you have a person in that you put handcuffs on them. A person in handcuffs, they, you've added something to them, and in adding that to them, you've taken something away without actually removing anything from them. So a person that's in handcuffs, they do not cease to be human, although they do lose some of their mobility. They lose some of their freedom. They lose some of the prerogatives of of being without handcuffs. So by adding something to them, you've taken something away. That's what Jesus did in assuming a human nature. When he became human, something was added to him that did not cause him to lose any of his divinity, but in adding the human nature, it it, it lowered himself. It was like putting handcuffs on that he became lower. Verse 8 said that he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the humility of Christ was always pointed in one direction. It was always pointed to lowering himself. And so if you you watch this sequence play out, it's like he was in the very, very uh, form of God. He is God in his essence. But he lowered himself to, uh, to, he didn't cling to that divinity but rather, he, he emptied himself, and he, he emptied himself to become a human, but not just a human, a particular kind of human, which is a servant. But then, becoming a servant, he lowered himself lower, and becoming obedient to the fact that he, he did something that is, is, a, is a human experience, that human experience of dying, but not just any kind of death. He took on a particular kind of death of a criminal, and not just the death of a criminal, but the most excruciating, agonizing kind of death that any criminal could experience. That's being, being humiliated to the death on a cross. So it's this striking drama where you see Jesus go in the span of two verses from the height of heaven to the most unimaginably miserable experience that humans can endure. Jesus is and was God in his essence, light of light, very God of very God, eternal, uncreated, who willingly set aside the joy and the delight of heaven to join us and serve us in order that he would ultimately be rejected by us and crucified by us. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, those parts of the body in which the nerves were most numerous were pierced with rough iron nails. And the weight of the body was made to hang upon the tenderest part of the frame. No doubt the nails tore their cruel way through his flesh while he was hanging on the tree. He died in pain most exquisite of body and of soul. It was also a death most shameful. Thieves were crucified with him. His adversaries stood and mocked him. The death of the cross was one reserved for slaves and the basest of felons. No Roman citizen could be put to death in such a way as that hung up between heaven and earth as if neither one would have him, rejected of men and despised of God. That's the example of Christ. Let's look at the result of humility. Verse 9. Therefore, therefore, 
based on everything we just read, everything we've just observed. Therefore, because of all of that, the result of that humility, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that word therefore is critical because it shows us the link between the humiliation of Christ and the response of his Father. God exalted him. Notice the subject. Who's acting in the two sets of verses? In verses 6 through 8, Jesus is the subject. Jesus is acting. Jesus chose humility. Jesus chose the incarnation. Jesus chose the cross in obedience to God. But then in verses 9 through 11, God is the subject. God is taking the action. Therefore, God highly exalted him. God gave him the name that is above every name. God insisted that every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in heaven and in earth and under the earth. Jesus does not exalt himself. You notice that? Jesus does not honor himself. Do you see that? Jesus is honored by his Father. Jesus did not seek his own honor. He sought obedience to the Father, knowing that the Father would honor him ultimately. And so his example of humility is instructive for us, showing us what it is that the Christian life is like, the way humility works its way out in our own lives. God is the one who highly exalts Jesus. God bestows on him the supreme name. God vindicates his son. And this language of of every knee shall bow and every tongue confess refers to the final judgment. When all things are, are brought to an account, Judgment Day, every creature who has ever been alive will appear before the throne of Christ. And every single person, without exception, regardless of their faith, regardless of whether they are Christian or not, every single person will bend their knees and open their mouths with the song of Christ on their lips. And for Christians, this will be the culmination of everything we've lived for. This will be the most glorious thing that we've ever experienced to see the honor and vindication of our Lord who was crucified and humiliated and shamed for our sake. But for those who are apart from Christ, this will be a moment of terror unlike anything we can possibly imagine. Yet even then, Jesus does not honor himself. Verse 11 concludes by saying that all this happened in Christ to the glory of God the Father. Even then, Christ is is reflecting glory back to his Father. Now, it's practical, right? Verse 5, remember where we started in verse 5, Paul said this, have this mind, this mind of Christ, this attitude, this disposition of humility, This way of living, this way of being among yourselves, us, Christ the King Church, people on either side of you, people in front of you and behind you, people at the other service. Have this mind amongst ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. 
Jesus shows us the path of humility, but the result of humility is that God, just as he highly exalted Jesus, seeks the same thing for us. When our disposition is humility to build others up, to seek their welfare, we don't have to seek our own because God is there seeking our exaltation. And he will no less do it in our lives as he did in the life of Christ. Let me give you examples from Scripture. Matthew 23, 11. Jesus was speaking against the pride of the Pharisees. Jesus said, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be what? Humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James 4, 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. 1 Peter 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Remember, it's social, it's relational. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. In all those verses I just read, I want you to notice something. In no instance are we told to be humble. We're told to humble ourselves, and there's a big difference. If we, said, if, if we were told be humble, then that would be something more akin to take on a certain posture, a, a kind of introspective way of life, to be thinking about ourselves a lot. But to humble ourselves is an action. It is something that we impose upon ourselves whether we feel like it or not. So Paul or Jesus or none of the authors here, none of them say, go out there and make sure you be humble today. He's saying, it doesn't matter what you feel, humble yourself. It's a, it's a way of acting. And if your heart isn't there, your heart can catch up. But you act, it's, it's, it's something that, the, the act, it's like our, 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 our hearts are so bent toward pride that we're going to resist it. And we're going to find any number of ways to get around it. One simple way you can humble yourself is to kneel when you pray. It's a way of forcing your body to line up with what God wants, even if your heart doesn't want to be there. So if you're using others to get your way in this life, according to these scriptures, you're falling behind in the kingdom. Because God opposes the proud. The way to move forward in the kingdom of God is to be humble, to humble yourself, to count others better, to serve and lift them up. And there's a spiritual irony. You know that? There's a spiritual irony here that the path to exaltation leads through humility. It's like if you want to make it to the top in the kingdom of heaven, you'll have to be the one that is most willing to humble yourself. It's counterintuitive. You know, it's kind of like getting in an elevator and... You know, you, you push the button to go all the way to the bottom, you know, like the lowest floor, like, you know, the basement level. So you get in the elevator, the door shut, you push the lowest button, 
You know, you feel it go down, you get to the bottom, the door's open, you walk out onto the roof. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The way up is down. The way to get ahead in the kingdom is to humble yourself. And it's, it's always been that way. I mean, this, this is the pattern of heaven. The, the beautiful thing here that, that we see is that this is the way, this is the way heaven operates. This is the way the, the relationships within the Trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit work. Jesus humbled himself and God highly exalted him. Jesus' act of humility led to his exaltation, but he did not exalt himself. He was exalted by the Father. And so God created our world after the pattern of heaven. Sin screwed it up. But this is the way God's ordered the world. This, this is the way it's meant to be, and this is the way it will be forever. So we live that heavenly pattern now in our own lives. Count others more significant than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the, the humility of Jesus that is demonstrated in this text and that was lived at the cross. Lord, we can't even begin. There's, there's, no, there's no comprehension of, in a human mind fully of what Christ did. To be in, in his own essence, to be divine and yet to take on human form what that experience of those limitations would have been like. Lord, we just, these are the deepest mysteries. And yet here it is, and you, you practically apply it to us by telling us to have that same mind in ourselves. And so, Lord, as, as glorious it is, as it is to ponder the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ, you tell us what to do with it. And may we, Lord, follow your example. May the gospel be so alive in our hearts that this is what we do. That we don't consider ourselves, we don't count ourselves equal, even though we are. But we count others more significant. And we don't just look after our own interests, but we also look after others. Help us to love this way. Help us to have that sort of unity in our fellowship as a church. And Lord, now as we come to the table, I pray, Lord, that you will press on our hearts the value of the cross, the value of each one of us, and the call to humility. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.